0: Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association.
1: Hello and welcome to Law and the Family brought to you by the Family Law Section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Aaron Weems and with me is my co-host Anthony Hoover. Today we welcome Elizabeth Weissman, an attorney with Obermeyer, Redman, Maxwell, and Hippel. Liz specializes in adoption and reproductive rights and is a fellow in the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Attorneys. She also represents parties in surrogacy matters, including the preparation of gestational carrier agreements and other legal needs related to that process. Liz, welcome to the podcast, and please take a moment to share a little bit more about yourself with our audience.
2: Sure, thank you so much, Aaron and Anthony, for having me today. I'm really excited to speak with you all about this topic. Um, as you mentioned, I'm an associate with the Family Law Group of Obermeyer, um, and I'm really excited to be here today. You know, Even though adoption and reproductive law often is its own area, It overlaps so much with other areas of family law, which I know we'll be talking about today. So our goal is really just to go over some standard areas in reproductive law that you may run into with your clients and to know how to deal with that. And to also talk about how it could really interplay with other areas of family building like surrogacy or adoption and, of course, other areas of matrimonial law.
1: Well, we're looking forward to hearing about it because it certainly is an area that I think uh, many of us in the family law field end up touching on and and having some peripheral interaction with. But what got my attention was your blog post, which was titled, Five Things to Know About Embryo Adoption, because while I've done adoptions, I've never done an embryo adoption. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that area and what exactly you meant by embryo adoption.
2: Sure. Yeah. And so I actually think that's a great point because it's not an adoption at all. And that's really what we talk about throughout this. I think adoption is, in general, adoption is very old law in Pennsylvania. And in a lot of states, adoption law is state by state, just like family law Um, and reproductive law is managed that way as well. And of course, there's some interacting, you know, regulations between states and things like that. But it really is a state specific issue. In Pennsylvania, just kind of overarching everything, we don't actually have law talking about, you know, what an embryo is and what it isn't. And it's a hot button issue as we've seen, you know, with recent decisions to just in general what an embryo is or isn't. And so in Pennsylvania, when we're looking at reproductive law, it's all contract based. And there's some court cases that we'll talk about a bit today too, that, you know, help us with that. And there's some regulations, but we don't actually have law to look to, whereas in other states like New Jersey, New York, and other states across the US, they actually have written law. And so with embryo adoption, I've received over the last, you know, I would say since the pandemic, and I know a lot of my colleagues as well, this increase in conversation about embryo adoption. Um, And what that actually is is somebody donating their embryos to another family or intended parent. You know, it could be a single person. Could be a gay couple, could be you know heterosexual couple, and donating the embryos to them to use for their own family building journey. And we've seen a lot of this for a few reasons. Um, There's been a lot of fertility fraud cases coming up and malpractice with, you know, clinics putting the wrong embryos in the wrong people. Cryobanks having issues with their technology, and so things thawing at the wrong time. And so all of a sudden, these places are saying, you know, we may not want to store these embryos. We want to or people are saying, I don't want to pay for these embryos. We're done building our family or, you know, we decide not to proceed with it or we're not together anymore but we want to donate them to another couple because there also could be storage fees that people are paying, you know, on a yearly basis to, to keep those embryos. And so, you know, a variety of different scenarios that we mentioned kind of started this process. And I think just general, the direct person to person contact that we're seeing more and more with social media, you know, people are finding each other rather than going through an agency or maybe a clinic or something like that. They're kind of doing it the opposite. They're finding their match, finding somebody that's willing to donate their embryo and some, or someone that's looking for one and then going to a attorneys are going to clinics to you know figure out how they can actually make it happen but anyway long way to say it's not an adoption you know an adoption happens after a child is born In Pennsylvania, consents can only be signed 72 hours after birth. And then there's, you have to go through with the termination of parental rights and the finalization of the adoptive parent rights. And it's written law that you're following. With an embryo donation, what you're doing is really making this agreement between the parties. And then you're drafting an agreement, a donor agreement that says, you know, the intentions, expectations, the next steps, who will transport it, who will pay for it, what clinics it's, it's going to. It'll talk about that process and be signed by the parties, and so it's navigated through contract law.
1: So with that point of being contract law, one of the things that comes to mind is that you have the ability to make your own definitions about what words mean. When we talk about words like embryo and and some of these other things, do do you see it where parties sort of make the call as to when certain thresholds are met, whether it's with the embryo and and how it's maturing? Do you see them getting into those details, or are, are you finding that people are, because of Dobbs and other things that are going on in our country, are being careful about how they describe the fetus and the embryo?
2: I think they're going to be, you know, I think they're going to be lots of times these embryos, they're stored somewhere, they're classified, you even have an ID number, you know, with these embryo donor agreements, we may attach Like the inventory from the clinic or the bank that says this is who it is. And it's to make sure those exact embryos are being moved. We outline how many there are. So they're already frozen and they may have already been genetically tested. What you're talking about, where there's a lot of talk about right now is what does actually conception mean? What does fertilization mean? What is a embryo? And then does that have then personhood? And that's what we're seeing a lot about in Dobbs is if states are recognizing that genetic material, you know, an embryo has personhood. When does conception actually happen? When does that start? If we're counting six weeks back from conception, when do we start that? And so I think right now there's, a you know, in the, the group that you mentioned, the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Technology Attorneys, you know, in our group, we're having these webinars, these town halls, we're having these discussions, we're having doctors come in to talk to us. And we're talking to our colleagues that are in those states that are having these issues. And I think even just beyond the embryo part, it's affecting so many other aspects. You know, if you're working with a surrogate in Texas and you agree to selective reduction if, let's say, it's not safe for her to carry twins, and you have to, you know, terminate one of them, and she can't do that in her state, and then you agreed to that in the agreement. Is that contract valid? Because you all just agreed to potentially commit a crime, you know. And it's just anyway. So, and then are all the contracts have already been signed that talk about selective reduction or what state they would go to? So, I think we're going to see more and more of that right now, the different definitions. But in these embryo donor agreements. These are already frozen embryos lots of times, so they can be moved. However, people may agree on certain things. Like, I was working with clients that were receiving the embryos, the um, intended parents, and they didn't want to genetic test them because that's, you know, a feeling that people... It's not something they want to do for religious or political reasons. And the family that was donating them felt the same way. They didn't want the embryos genetically tested. And so that was written in the agreement that they would donate these embryos, but the parties would agree not to test them. They would agree not to re-donate them to anyone else. And they agreed to basically return them if they didn't use them all for their journey. And so it's just interesting. You can, to answer your question, you can contract around certain things and make sure it fits to your needs. But I do think we're going to see a lot of conversations about definitions, timelines, us as attorneys you know, having to interpret these things and then kind of guiding our clients. Is this something you just don't talk about in the agreement then that you kind of keep open because it's better not to contract around it?
3: And you said, you know, just talking about contracts, not, you know, single contract, some other documents that individuals involved in this process might expect. If you could just kind of explain a little bit there.
2: Sure. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really helpful because lots of times people don't realize how much it is. And it starts just piling and piling on. So if you're looking to get, you know, not even embryo, let's say you're looking for an egg donation and you want to use, you know, your husband's sperm, and then you're going to carry something like that. You might have an agreement with an egg bank. You might have an agreement with a like a consultant or concierge service, like donor concierge is one that's very well known. And, you know, I have a lot of clients that have used where they actually help them find the right surrogate or egg donor. And that might be, you know, somebody that's donated eggs before. So they're going to go through what's called like a fresh retrieval cycle. So then you'll also have an agreement with the donor, you know, about that process. And then you'll have a contract with the agency that matched you as well as potentially, you know, this concierge or consultant. You'll also likely have escrow accounts. You know, if you're having an egg donor, known egg donor, there may be compensation for the process. You're not, they're not being paid to give you anything. It's still a donation. And that's navigated clearly in the agreements. You'll probably use a third party escrow company. And there's, you know, one that's really well known that's called Seed Trust, where everyone can log in see the escrow, be managed by a third party. So you'll probably have a contract with someone that's managing that side and of course with your own fertility clinic and bank um you know who's storing this genetic material you'll be paying the storage fees there you'll also be deciding what's happening to the embryos so you'll be saying you know if we separate spouse one gets them if we separate they'll be destroyed you know it'll talk about what would happen with these and that's really important when people are not married and kind of making these decisions and thinking about that looks like you'll also want to probably do your own documents like your estate planning documents you probably want to talk to your family law attorney and just say hey we're doing this right now and we want to plan for it and make sure everything matches because what you don't want happening is let's say you put in your documents that you would destroy the genetic material if you didn't use it. And there's your spouse dies. Suddenly you're not expecting it. You thought this would be 30 years down the line. It would be destroyed. Right. And then it says in the documents that you can't have it you know, if you have your estate planning documents that say, oh, this property goes to my spouse, should something happen? And if that's signed after that release document, you could have some more protection to get that material that you may be seeking. So there's just it could be a variety of agreements that come into play, as well as your own legal planning that you'd want to do. And, of course, if you work with a surrogate, you would have a gestational carrier agreement with that surrogate and their spouse if they're married, as well as any third parties involved, like the fertility clinic, Um, their services. There's people that come to your home and help with injections. You may have a contract with them. So it really can range. But that's why it's so important to have an attorney, honestly, early on to help you review everything. Because all these contracts have ramifications down the line. when you're already going through such a sensitive part of your life, you want to make sure that you're really protected and know what you're doing.
1: Well, you can just basically uh, put a note in the back of my head about looking at some different cases of, for people that have prenuptial agreements and whether we contemplated uh, certain contracts and those agreements. Because I can see how the nature of contracting with third parties and contracting with things like egg banks and things like that, that these are because of the nature of the contracts they could actually impact whether you have certain provisions in a prenuptial agreement about how you're going to do you know how you're going to treat contracted anything contract you know I don't want to call it an asset but it's something along the categorization of where you are contracting for something within you know, during the marriage, that's even something that I think we should look at. And, and also, a conversation to have with clients who might be looking at all options when they're prepared to get married and are contemplating within their agreements about if and when they have children and things like that. Maybe it's worth us family law attorneys to consider whether we want to have some reproductive right language in there about how you would deal with certain issues. But the one thing that I wanted to ask about specifically is you mentioned with egg donation, the payment is a donation. Could you talk a little bit about these different areas where there's donation of funds? versus payment for services and, and sort of where that line blurs, what, what we need to be aware of.
2: Yeah, it's it's definitely very challenging. You definitely want to have good language in your contracts that talks about it, but it's really compensation for, you know, like any pain and suffering in the process, lost wages. Um, it's not an easy process to go through an egg retrieval cycle. It's very different than a sperm donation, extremely different and involves injections, timelines, doctor's appointments. And so, you know, the medication also can be very costly. Child. Care you know, if the woman has other children and, and isn't able to take care of the home or the children. And so it's interesting, though, because I, I know we talked about this in preparing for this session. It's state specific. You know, you want to make sure that you understand your state's laws and the laws of where the other person is, because you can have an agency in California matching, you know, a donor from Colorado for with intended parents in Pennsylvania. And so you also want to make sure you're understanding like the issues in the other states and how they look at it, what's allowed in other countries. A lot of other countries, it's illegal. Just in general, surrogacy, it's viewed as a way of almost human trafficking. And a lot of people come to other countries like the U S because they, it's only they form shop here because they have the flexibility to do so. And also just a lot more openness. Like Ukraine used to have a very active surrogacy program before, obviously not now with, with the war, but couples from Europe would often go there just for the costs and the location, things like that, but they only allowed married heterosexual couples. So single parents or gay couples that were in countries that don't allow surrogacy, you know, they couldn't go there, end up coming to the US or other places. So yeah, so it can just really vary in terms of, but you want to make sure the language is clear that you're not buying any sort of organs you're not violating any federal laws of selling organs or medical material people do this for compassionate purposes too you know we see like family members things like that that are just you know they're being compensated for the expenses that are spent the health insurance you'll likely be buying extra supplemental insurance you know loss of organs accidental death things like that even like bed rest insurance to make sure there's payments you know if a woman has to be on bed rest and that's actually another contract you probably would have with the insurance different insurances that you buy. And so there's a lot of different things that the person would be compensated for. But yeah, you're definitely not paying for genetic material ever. It's a donation. However, what I will say is if you're going to like a bank, like an egg bank or sperm bank, where they have frozen banked material, in those situations, the people that donated, they like relinquish their rights and everything directly to that bank or clinic already. And so when you're going to get it, you are like signing a contract To purchase that genetic material from that bank. And so it's a blurred line, you know, as you mentioned, but I think even more reason why you have to talk to attorneys and make sure, because what we do hear about happening, and I'm sure we've all seen TV things about this and Facebook is people meet online or local. They decide to do this at home. They're paying each other directly, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it can just cause a lot of problems. There's IRS things that you have to be aware of with your taxes, what you should be reporting if you're paying the money or if you're receiving it. You should track everything. That's why third-party escrow is so great, you know, to make sure you have all the receipts and things like that. And of course, it can be, you know, a lot of this, if you're doing a surrogacy journey, the medical bills are in the surrogate's name. And so you really want to make sure that all of a sudden they're not getting stuck with, you know, a $50,000 hospital bill or something like that and their credits being affected and, you know, things like that. So with the compensation, you really want to make sure to have good third parties, like, you know, a trusted escrow Agency and make sure your contracts outline exactly what everything is for and are just really specific, you know, for each scenario.
3: All right. So, um, <laughs> a, a lot here. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Liz, a lot of detail, a lot of good stuff here, but thinking about the long term. All right. I mean, I, I think you've talked about the contracts. You've touched upon a lot of different aspects in the process, thinking about, and I think you even referenced it in your article about the long-term, things that people need to consider while going into this. You know, I think I heard you say earlier here that, you know, it is an emotional process. People are thinking about building a family. They're thinking about the, yeah, the long-term, you know, family implications and things like that, which are spectacular. But then think about the long-term legal side of things and things that could happen. If you wouldn't mind just touching on that a little bit.
2: Sure, and I think, um, you know, Aaron mentioned this a bit too. There's kind of these different stages where the legal aspects could come up. And so I, I do think, you know, just from the beginning, it'd be great for every family law attorney and their intake to ask, you know, do you guys have stored genetic material? Have you donated before? Were you a sperm donor in college? Because that can have implications that, you know, come up later that I'll talk about in a moment. But I think when you're talking to new clients, just making that kind of, you know, when you're asking how many cars do you have and how much is your house worth and those questions, Do you have storage and egg material or have you donated before or do you plan to do this in the future and i think people will be surprised how many people already do have some sort of a plan or you know maybe someone had cancer so they froze their eggs so they already have embryos you know things like that so i think just even when you first talk to your lawyer it can help for any legal implications to make sure they know the big picture what's available it can come up in a variety of ways you know right when you're getting the material you're going to be signing like for an embryo donor agreement the people that are donating the embryos are saying that first of all that they are their embryos you know that they have the right to them and that they're releasing any rights or parentage or inheritance rights or anything that could be there we're not saying it's a person but if it was And if it becomes one, that they're releasing any sort of those rights and that the intended parents are then taking on those rights and responsibilities and then, you know, actually potentially carrying that embryo to term and having that child or using a carrier. And of course, there's other aspects that you'll have to do. You know, if you have a gestational carrier, you'll have to get what's called a pre-birth order in Pennsylvania where the court gives the parentage order that says These intended parents are the parents. It talks about what the embryo is, if it was donated, if it was made by their genetic material, if it was one of them. And then it talks about the carrier, when they're due, if there's twins, you know, whatever's going on. And then what happens is when the baby's born, to the surrogate, this parentage order goes to the hospital and then to vital records. And they know that these are the parents. So you see those illegal implications, you know, prior to birth. There's also post-birth orders, you know, if you don't get it before, or if you're doing it for somebody out of the country, you may have to get pre and post-birth orders. That's in Pennsylvania. Every state has different process for that. And then you could also have to do an adoption. So, and with an adoption, and, and I know this is, you know, more traditional, as we talked about, you'd end up getting a final decree of adoption, which confirms parentage, of course, as well. And we see this in a variety of ways, you know, especially right now post-Dobbs for like same-sex couples, it's, you know, two women are married and the one wife carries, has the child. and PA, the second wife can be on the birth certificate right away. Let's say they use a sperm donor from a bank, or they had a friend that was a donor and they had a donor agreement with them. It would be smart, especially with Dobbs, to actually terminate the owners' rights and finalize the spouse's rights, even though they're the legal parent, you know, under presumption of parentage, even though they're on the birth certificate, which isn't proof of parentage, but you know, it's a good idea of it, but it's just really, um, we're seeing these second parent adoptions as well and recommending it, you know, especially people aren't married, of course, too, but just in light of Dobbs of what could potentially happen for future Supreme court cases. And you're really protecting the child to make sure they're having both their parents have their legal rights to them.
3: All right, Liz, I'll tell you, so you've talked here for a bit and provided a lot of really good information. Anything else that, you know, you could kind of leave our listeners with to think about or guidance on what they should be thinking about, you know, at any step along the process?
2: Yeah, I think just keeping it in mind, like I said, you know, when you have clients that come for intake asking, this is possibility when you're doing your prenup agreements. If you know your clients might be going through this, reaching out to them to do embryo disposition agreements, talking about who gets the embryos if they separate or, you know, divorce, making sure they have estate planning documents that match. You really just want to make the reproductive law aspects part of the rest of family law. And I think it is getting there. Um, but you just don't want a situation where your clients are in a position like kind of the hypo I gave where they can't access this genetic material and everyone knew that it was the intentions of the parties to do so and someone isn't alive anymore and, you know, things like that. So I think thinking and then even that property settlement, you know, asking your clients that come to you, we should put this in the agreement to make sure it's clear who gets this or if it's destroyed and just agree to it as part of our estate to make sure it's clear. And then another thing that we really didn't talk about is just the idea of anonymity and it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, before people could donate anonymously to an egg bank, sperm bank, closed adoption, things like like that you know states have open access laws for people especially for the kids things are usually sealed but then when they're a certain age they can access them there's no actual such thing as anonymity anymore and so it's best for you guys as attorneys to make sure your agreements say that that we'll do everything we can to keep things private and confidential but with between 23 and me and social media and just the world we live in there's no way to keep things anonymous. And so that's just the tidbit I definitely want to leave with everyone because it's a, it's a change in the culture and the spectrum of what it looks like, but it's not going to go backwards. You know, it's only going to become more and more open going forward and just understanding that. And then getting a lawyer that knows what they're doing in your state is really, really important because you don't want to start making these choices that have these big implications without knowing what's happening. Like you don't want to keep your embryos in a state that maybe views them as people soon, you know, and and things like that. And so just navigating with a trusted attorney is really important.
3: All right, Liz. Well, thank you so much. A lot of great information there. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you for listening to another episode here of Law and the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thank you. Thank you so much. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania
0: Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.